Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I are doing our book club for The Dreamers by Karen Thompson Walker. Uh, We're going to discuss our backlist books, you know, for our new feature that we talked about last week. And we're also going to talk about what we're reading. Now, originally, we were going to do our men episode, but we have our interview up with Ron Charles. And so now we have this book club episode. So you get a little bit of a break if you didn't read the book, because it'll be, it'll, I guess it'll be super short for you then. And uh, we want to devote a whole episode to the male authors that we enjoy and to try to get to the bottom of why we read so few of them. So there was this story that I saw that I was so interesting that I wanted to mention to you. It was in electric literature and it's called the myth of the consistently great writer. It just talks about how certain people like certain authors will write this really great book and they become known for that book so that, and this book gets such acclaim that whatever they write after it, gets the same acclaim as well. And it talks about how, you know, that can be detrimental to other writers because marketing and publishing and businesses being what they are, they always sort of want to bet on the sure thing. And it just makes me think about people when when you have that big breakout book and people are waiting for the next book, you just know it's going to be bought no matter what. And it kind of ties into what Ron Charles was saying about how it's so hard for them to find people to review Meg Wolitzer's book because she's so known and, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone is connected to her in some way that it's hard to provide impartial reviews for her and just talks about the industry and how it's changing. You know, everyone's blurbing people's books and how Goodreads, we just have less of a professional review that can take a look and say, this book does not come up to par with other books that they've written or whatever. I don't know. It was just, there's a lot of really interesting questions in this. And I'm definitely going to be reading this article more closely. And I'm sure you'll hear these topics posting because they've definitely been things that I've been thinking about in terms of what we say about books and what we say about certain authors or just blurbs because everyone is so connected. Do you ever get any true criticism? I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense from a publishing perspective. You know, they're they're taking a gamble on authors all the time, new authors, unproven authors. So for them, it makes sense that they're going to say, well, this book did really well. So let's double down on this author and, you know, with the with the hope that their batting average is going to be higher for the next book than sort of the unproven, unknown artists out there. So it makes sense. But at the other, on the other hand, it's hard for one person to consistently churn out the same level of book people, you know, everything we do as humans, we're inconsistent. And it, you know, so you've got that tension between expectation and then reality. So that makes sense. And then there's a thing like, like the sophomore slump, you know, that is a thing for a reason. And I think it is because when you get your first book published, First of all, there's that term. I've gotten the first book published. It usually is not the writer's first book. Right. Usually that first book is representative of however many failed, 
drafts, <laughs> manuscripts, that first book, that debut novel, it could be their 10th book. Right. It could be their first book, but more than likely, you know, I was talking to a writer friend of mine and she's, she's written like three or four books. And I think she has an agent. This is the first one that has engendered that attention. One, she just point blank said it wasn't good enough. And then you run into writing these books and no one will take it because it does not fit what is being published at the time. So just talking with her just reminded me how much books are written by committee. You really don't realize it, but we're just talking about a book of hers that didn't get taken because the marketing department did not think that they could market the book. Mm -hmm. So, so now it's back to the drawing board and there's other books, another book that she's working on has written and there's an issue with the main characters. So I think that we like to think, Oh, this author, they've, investigated this and they've written this book because it was their passion project or it was their heart. And sometimes that is the case and they get lucky, but you do have forces, I guess, that are involved from the very beginning that have an effect on what we're reading and what we're demanding. I mean, publishers at the end of the day have to make money. And so they've got to, unless you're talking about obscure sort of academic press, they have to continually publish books that they think will sell. So I'm sure there's a lot of analysis that goes into every choice. And like you say, what do they have a market for it? How can they pitch it? What makes it different from what else is out there? So there's a lot of things that have to go into that to make that decision. And with less coverage of books, of course, there's going to be less, less critical voices Mm -hmm. for a number of different reasons. And so Carrie Mullins wrote this article. It's called The Myth of the Consistently Great Writer and how it benefits certain people, how it's a detriment to us in some ways in terms of having more critical voices around books and what's really good, which is why I think, you know, even if I'm not doing it in written form so much anymore, it is important to, when we talk about what what it is that we didn't like about a book, it can be an important piece of the conversation because not every book is going to be good. And some books you really love, like we were talking about Lauren Grodstein and how a friend of the family was this really great book. I read the second book. I was like, ah, this book wasn't that great. You weren't attracted by it. You have your favorite authors and they don't always write the book that some books are their masterpiece or whatever. And some books are just sort of, you know, like it was, it was enjoyable, but it was not amazing right. you know right so now you know where we'll be getting all of our podcasts <laughs> fodder exactly from. <laughs> this article okay all right so should we didn't they did they announce the Pulitzer yes. stuff? uh the overstory one richard is his name richard powers he yeah. wrote for that book which i have not read i just i, I don't think that's going to be for me it's like a book about a book about trees. I've heard it's amazing. I have a good friend who loves it, but he loves super dense, complicated books. And mm-hmm. when he was describing it to me in the back of my mind, I was like, save your breath because I'm never going to read this book. Right. Yeah. And weren't the, uh, the two of our March Madness books, I think, were up for it, right? Oh, I don't Believers. even know. Okay. I think The Great Believers and I think An American... I don't know. An American Marriage came out last year. So when I was reading this article talking about the Pulitzers, I was kind of surprised to see that that was on the the list, I think, of the long list or the short list for it. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them won, but it was just interesting to see them both because we 
well, they didn't, they weren't head to head for the ultimate prize, but they did go against each other in, in our little competition. So right. I don't know. It just felt a little validated. That's yeah. All. Yeah, exactly. Look <laughs> at us. All right. So what are you reading? So I'm reading Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese, and this is the famous retelling of Jane Eyre, but from the perspective of the mad woman in the attic, whose name is Bertha Mason. I don't know if her name is Bertha Mason in, in here. I think it's she's actually Antoinette Cosway. What makes this special, I think, is because it took into account her Caribbean background, um, Antoinette Cosway. So what kind of life did she have before she met Rochester? What were the influences that shaped their marriage and shaped, you know, her demise and gave her the place that she had in Jane Eyre? So it's kind of giving her a voice. I've read this book before. I don't, I feel like I'm going to get a lot out of it. Like I remember reading this and really appreciating it and loving it, but it's been long enough that I've read it that I don't have much memory of it. So that's kind of exciting. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that was on your radar to read. And on audio, I just started listening to a book called Blood Orange. It's a thriller. It's about this young woman who is married. She's an attorney and she has a child. And she's also having an affair with one of her colleagues. Like that's what, these are things that you find out as soon as you start reading this book that she's involved in this obsessive affair. And she, um, she gets her first murder trial. So it's the first murder trial that she's going to be working on. And the woman who she is defending is already saying that she's guilty, but she feels like that there is going to be more to the story. So I'm listening to that on audio and it's a good listen on audio. So I'm looking forward to getting more into that and seeing where all of this, this intrigue is going because it seems like some, someone is out to get the young lawyer. And I don't know, like her and her husband have this really intense relationship and I don't know if he's aware that they're having an affair or not. So I've probably listened to like three chapters so far. So that's Blood Orange by Harriet Tice. Sounds good. What about you? So I just finished a book of short stories called Look How Happy I'm Making You by Polly Rosenwake. And they're all about motherhood in some form. So there's a story about a woman who can't get pregnant, a woman who's having a miscarriage, then a new mother. So it kind of takes you through the whole stages of parenthood through the course of this book with each story. And they're all told from the point of view of the woman. And uh, and they're pretty good. They remind me a little bit of Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny because Curtis uh, posted about it and said something about the stories. And I was thinking that they, um, it didn't surprise me that she would be interested in that book because it's reminded me of hers. Um, it, it kind of suffers from the same problem that I think a lot of short stories do, that they're not individually all that memorable they blunt they blunt together a lot and i sort of feel like the protagonist in all of them is sort of vaguely the same like a jewish woman in her 30s or 40s who is at some stage of motherhood um but they're good and they're observant and they they ring very true and they're pretty short so i picked it up first of all because i thought i liked 
the description and also because it satisfies my short stories requirement for the every day I read the book blog challenge. So I finished that and because that was a library book, it kind of jostled trust exercise out of the way. So I had started trust jostling. I know. (laughs) And I have like four library books right now. So poor trust exercise keeps getting pushed back. Um, But I will, I will get to it. So that's still sitting there. And then I have on audio because after I finished educated and baby teeth, that's when I was craving something lighter. So on audio, I'm reading the Sally Thorne book that came after the hating game. So this one's called 99% mine. You've probably seen it all over Instagram and the book, the book world. And it's, um, it's, I can't remember. Did you read, um, the hating game or you did not read the hating game? Uh, I started, but didn't finish. I think I had an E galley of it. So if I read it, I'll have to, I'll have to get it because yeah. I'm, we discuss as we discussed, I'm not really good with ebooks. I forget, I forget about them. No, totally do. So this is a nice, like gleaming hardcover from the library, shiny and bright. So it's kind of like the hating game in that it's a couple and they're sort of sparring intellectually where, and you know, deep down they love each other and that they're going to probably end up together. But it's this like long, long build up the way the hating game was. So it feels reminiscent of the hating game and it's not quite as good as the hating game, but it's still really enjoyable and it's like flying by. So I'm doing that on audio. I predict I'll probably finish that pretty soon. So now, did you listen to the hating game? Yes, I did listen to the hating game and I did this one okay. on audio too. Although okay, some, sometimes I just pick it up because it's like, it's very, like I took it to walk the dog this morning in print because I just was like wanting to forge ahead. Those two, and then when I finish, now that I'm finished with the short stories, I'm going to pick up another library book called The Falconer. And this is about, and I've just started it. I've only read about maybe 30 pages of it. It's about a girl growing up in New York in the 90s who is a basketball player. And she's in high school. And it's about her relationship with this uh, this really close friend of hers. And I think it's going to be kind of a coming of age in the 90s in New York. And I, I don't remember who read it. Maybe it was Catherine at Gilmore Guide. But somebody read it and really liked it. And I put myself on the library list. And, of course, it came in. So next up will be The Falconer. And then The Girl He Used to Know also came in from the library. And so I'm going to have to read that, too. <laughs> So uh, I kind of cramped in with a bunch of library books right now. And then I'll go back to Trust Exercise. I feel bad that I started it and didn't finish it, but I will go back. Well, as long as you go back, that's the important thing. Exactly. So that's where I am with reading. So what's your backlist book of the week? So my backlist book of the week is an old book. It's probably about 10 years old. And it is called Cost by Roxana Robinson. And I read this book, like I said, I think in like 2009, but I think that it is just as important today as it was then. So cost is about a family. Um, I believe it's been a while since I read it, but I believe it's two parents and two sons and the sons are grown or at least they're like kind of post-college. And one of them has an addiction to heroin. And it's all about the family's attempt to get their son clean. 
So getting him into rehab, the ups and downs of dealing with a family member who's addicted, the hope, the fear, the constant stress of dealing with it. It is a really, really meticulously written book. Lots of detail, lots of ups and downs about this family's life. It's really hard to read it because it's just, you feel so bad for them and it's very stressful, but you kind of also get into the mind of the addict. So you start to see, you know, what happens to the addict and how their, their side of things and how they're dealing. And I just remember reading it and just feeling like, kind of like I got punched in the gut reading it, but that it was so good. Um, so I was, you know, trying to pick my backlist book last night, looking through the shelves and that one just really jumped out at me. I don't think that it got a lot of attention when it came out. Uh, she, she wrote, I'm trying to think of what the other book was that she wrote that I read. She takes on really difficult. I think she wrote a book about the military. Um, that I either read or did not read, and I can't remember. I think I have it, and I'm just not sure if I read it. Oh, yeah, Sparta. I didn't read Sparta, and that is about somebody who comes back from Iraq with PTSD. And I have that book, and I didn't read it. But Cost, I did read, and it was really good. So I, I just feel like this is a book that could use more attention. And even though it's, you know, 10 years old, actually, I read it in 2008, so even longer. It's still just a really powerful book. So I would love to read Sparta. You know, I, I feel like Iraq war books are, you know, I've talked a lot about military books and I feel like they're kind of fading a little bit. So I'd like to, I'd like to pick that one back up. You have um, it? Yeah, I do have it. I think I bought it. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at my blog and at one point I went to the strand and picked up a big stack of books and that was one of them. Ooh. So I definitely have it in the house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at this pile of books <laughs> and did you I read them. No, well, I may have. I read one of them. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine books that I bought at the Strand, and I've read literally one of them. Tell the Wolves I'm Home. The rest of them are either still on my shelf or I purged them. But I, d- I doubt I purged them because I re- researched them carefully before I bought them. So it's right. unlikely that I have gone through a purge and, and seen these and thought, oh, yeah, this is, book doesn't sound very good because they wouldn't have ended up on the list before I bought them. Oh, no, two of them. I read two of them. The Obituary Writer by Anne Hood. I remember reading that. Okay, so two out of the nine I read. Yeah, and now you've sworn off Anne Hood. I have sworn <laughs> off Anne Hood. That's the end of Anne Hood. Um, but anyway, so, so Sparta is, must be still sitting in my sh- um, on my shelf somewhere. So I'm going to try to read it. So question for you, have you read any of the books that you bought while you were on vacation? Oh, on my last vacation, I only bought one and it was, um, the new Howley Butler book, the new me. No, I haven't read mm-hmm. it. <laughs> okay. there. I'm telling you, like I got back and there were like six library books. This, the library is very dangerous. It's re- cause you feel like you put, you're like, ah, I'll just put my name on the list. It won't come in for months. And then like two weeks later it comes in. And then all of a sudden, it's a book you really want to read, and you know you have to read it right now because it's a new release. Like that Falconer right. book is due like in two days. So I, is it? Yeah, yeah, and it's DC, so there's no penalties. But it's you know me with the library; I don't like to be late. So, but and of course, the is there a waiting one, list for it? Oh yeah, I tried to renew it. If there's a waiting list. Oh. And the girl he used to know. I'm amazed I even got that one because you know there's a huge waiting list for that. So I have to read it. 
poor trust exercise. It's going to be September. I know. I feel so bad for be it. Like, and I'm I just was... getting to trust exercise. I'll probably read it before you do. I know. And then you know what? I read. I, I'm not even going to say this. Well, what? I'll be really. <laughs> I read some <laughs> review of trust exercise that gave away oh, did it? something. And, oh. and I had read other reviews that had hinted that there is a change of perspective. And don't through. say anymore. Yeah. Well, so the, somebody had said there's a twist. And so. Ah, I, God, I, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but so then this other review, like, basically said what it was. I'm so irritated. Like, why, why would you do that? And, like, as soon as I saw it, I, I closed the window on the computer as if it were, like, on fire. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Oh. Irritated by that whole thing. Okay. Okay. Enough said about that. All right. So what's your backlist book? My backlist book is The Silent Wife by A.S.A. Harrison. Um, It was written in, it came out in June of 2013. And unfortunately, the author, I think she died just before the book was published. And... I feel like if she had she lived, she would be a writer who would we would mention and talk about um, the same way we talk about Gillian Flynn or maybe Paula Hawkins because she wrote this book. I said it's called The Silent Wife, and it is about this toxic relationship. In my review at the time, like I was lamenting the fact that there was, you know, we have so many novels where you don't get to see what happens. Like they're always dangling what happened that fateful night in front of you. And, you know, sort so it can get sort of tedious waiting to see what the secret was. But this was not one of these books. This was a book where right away, like the first chapter, you know that Jody and Todd are in a relationship or they're married, you know, like they're this affluent Chicago couple, and she has killed him. Um, you don't know. It's like a why done it. It's not a who done it. So it tells it from these two perspectives. It's sort of set in the present where you're racing towards this moment where Jody has killed Todd and like what has led up to it, like what precipitated it, and I guess pushed her over the edge. But at the same time, it's going back and it's examining their relationship and how they met and what motivates them and their interactions. So, and it was really, it was really well done. Like I was on pens and needles. I mentioned what a stressful read it was. And so if you like that kind of stressful, toxic relationship read, then this is a good one. And I feel like we're always looking for that good thriller. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not you, Gail. I don't know. This one might stress you out. No, I read this one. Did you? Did I did. You I, yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. Um, yeah. I like this one because it was a little bit more character driven than maybe some of right. the other thrillers. And mm-hmm. it's kind of about these two really flawed people. Like, why is she staying with him? And he's right. a huge jerk. Uh, but I thought it had lots of suspense to it and momentum. And I, I really liked it. It was so suspenseful the way she set it up. I mean, it was one of those books that's, it's sort of thrilling how suspenseful it is because you know what, it's not like, oh, I wonder if she's going to kill him. You know, she does. But yes, getting, getting, you're like, (laughs) getting to that point, like getting to, like you said, it, it is a psychological examination. It was, 
it wasn't, it just really goes into, yeah, how they tick, how their relationship works, what changed the dynamic of the relationship that would get them to this place. And so I said, readers who enjoy tension-filled forays into toxic minds and marriages will enjoy dissecting this relationship, either alone or with friends they urge to read it. So I really liked it. And that, That's different. I wrote, it's a character study of two deeply flawed people compared with the plot twisty joyride of Gone Girl. It's quieter, more emotionally intense, more psychologically disturbing, and not particularly funny. But lots mm-hmm. of suspense and momentum. Good. That's a great pick. If anyone reads it, report back to us and let us know. I mean, I know that we are attracted to those psychological thrillers, and sometimes it's difficult to find a satisfying one. And I feel like this was a satisfying one. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I read this before I had kind of OD'd on psychological thrillers. So I was not, uh, I wasn't like super. You weren't as jaded. (laughs) I wasn't as jaded, and I wasn't like, this better be good. But I really liked it. Right. I really liked it because it reminded yeah, me of Gone Girl. Yeah, she had that extra there. Yeah. Yeah. It says, dysfunctional marriage, manipulative, borderline sociopathic wife, clueless, selfish husband, inevitably messy ending, alternating narratives, addictive story. Check, 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 check. So, yeah, great pick. I love that. Probably a more fun read than um, Cost by Roxana Robinson. I said she keeps house as well as maintains a part-time psychotherapy practice. The number of insane like psychotherapy people in fiction should in real have life. Afraid in, should have people afraid <laughs> to go to the ther- to see their therapist. I know. Well, don't you ever like know people that you're like, oh, she was really, you know, she had a lot of issues. And then you find out later, oh, yeah, now she's a therapist. it's certainly not the case with all therapists I'm not in any way saying that but I do find that sometimes people that you do not expect to go into therapy go into therapy well I think that's because I mean um, The Silent Patient which I read and I really like I think that was one of the points of it is that people who are therapists well they seek it out for a reason you know like the main character in that novel talks at length about how um he has sought psychotherapy because of whatever's going on. And of course, then he has a very strange interaction with his client or this woman he has to reach and like what his motivations are. So, you know, I think there's a lot of nudge, nudge, wink, wink at, at, I guess the sanity of, uh, of the people that we go to for psychiatric, um, psychotherapy, any kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. But we're not saying anything about anything. <laughs> Just an observation. I'm sure your therapist is, is fine. <laughs> <sighs> All right. All right. So let's get into the dreamers. All right. The dreamers. So, so yeah. This is going to be our spoilery book club discussion. If you haven't read it, then. You know, this, I don't think there's a lot of spoilers I was about to with this book. Say, yeah. I was just about to say, as I'm thinking about completing that sentence, yeah, I don't know if you can really spoil anything in this book. And I think that that might have been one of my main issues with it, is that it was beautifully written, and you got introduced to these characters, and it is called The Dreamers, but I feel like it was a little bit too dreamlike for me. Okay. It was a little too... It's like cotton candy, like it dissolved a little too quickly, like I wasn't really mm. able to grasp it. 
think I want it a little bit more in terms of these dreamlike images, but why don't you, why don't we walk this back? Gail made a nice video for us that introduced the book, which we posted like in our Facebook group and on Instagram. So, but why don't you introduce the book for us all again? Sure. Okay. So The Dreamers is about a, a small Southern California college town where in one dorm, all of a sudden, a bunch of the students in the dorm start falling asleep and not waking up. And they, the first few that are afflicted, they're taken to the hospital until they determine that it's, this is a virus that is contagious. So the students are quarantined, but um, unfortunately, the, the virus extends, it spreads beyond the gym where these kids are being quarantined and it eventually spreads to the whole town. So when people are afflicted by it, they, like I said, they fall into this very deep sleep that can last for months and months and months and they don't wake up. They're not dead, they, but they don't wake up. And as it turns out, they're dreaming during the time that they're out. And so the story is really about what's happening to the people who are left behind. So, for example, the father with two daughters who is living in a house, the kind of survivalist, paranoid father, succumbs to this virus and what happens to his two daughters who are, you know, like 10 and 8 or something. Or there's uh, living next door to them is a, a family with a young baby and one of the parents succumbs to it. So um, what she does, what Karen Thompson Walker does is she's looking at this virus, but she's really looking at it through the prism of the personal impact that it has on a whole bunch of people in this town. And I think what Nicole is getting at, and I, I, I agree with her, is that that half of the book I found was very well told about the people who are left behind and how they kind of forge on and they make do in this town that has been completely cut off from the rest of the world. What I think is less effective, I agree with you, is the dreamer side of it. So understanding what's happening to the people while they're out, the dreams that they're having, because they met, there are scientists that are measuring the brain activity of the people who are, or doctors who are measuring the brain activity of the people who are sleeping. And they're determining that their brains are in a hyperactive mode. They're dreaming these vivid, intense dreams and using more of their brain during sleep than has ever been recorded before, like exponentially off the charts. So they've, they are in, they have this dreaming disease, but the question is why and to what end and what's the point? And, you know, as they start to wake up, I think you make a really good point that we don't really get a great sense of what was going on in their heads. And there's some exploration of that. But there's not a lot. And so you kind of get this resolution at the end and you're like, okay, so what was the point of that? Why did we go yeah, through all that? I think that that was one of, that was my main thing with the book. Like this was, it's almost like in order to enjoy this book and people, in order for me to enjoy this book, because I really do not like, I think that when I when I turn to fiction, I'm looking for, I mean, I don't want you to tell me everything and some things can be ambiguous, but I am looking for a point of view. And this is a lot of 
philosophical things. It's like if someone had said, okay, you're going to read this book, but it's more like I'm just sort of playing around exploring the nature of dreams. Um, so I, I wanted a little bit more resolution. I mean, I th- it's one of these things where you don't get that. It's, it's sort of like life. You don't get that. Like sometimes mysterious things, you have mysterious outbreaks and these are what the the side effects or I don't, I don't think side effects is the word that I'm looking for, but this is the result, you know, like this is just what happened, whether we can explain it or not. And I feel like there's so much about the human experience. Things happen and we come up with explanations for them and maybe they're not satisfied, you know, they're not satisfactory. Maybe they don't hold water and we come up with something for it later. I was really interested in the way that it was told because I feel like it was set up like what did you think of the voice that was telling it because it is sort of told from a we're looking back on this thing that happened in a sense and did you always know when people were dreaming I wasn't sure because it seemed like at some points people fell asleep but you were never sure if they were falling asleep and then later on they fall asleep and they're dreaming and I don't know it was never clear to me who was dreaming of who especially when you had more than one person in the same place do you get what I'm saying I do yeah and I think she I think it's not clear often through right. the book um because the father he dreams with his right there's a point where the family all falls asleep together and it seems like maybe the sickness has overtaken them. But then it just jumps to the next scene, which is very dreamlike because dreams jump from scene to scene. And the next time we see them, they're all awake and people are relieved to be awake. And then the wife gets the sickness and she falls asleep. And then it, we get this. Um, the husband is trying to deal with raising their daughter and he goes to visit her at the school or the gym where she's been transported. And so I wasn't sure if they fell asleep and we were experiencing, if we were getting to see his dream later on, like, is he dreaming of being alone with this baby? And, you know, like his Mm -hmm. questions about, so as I discussed this book, it's like one of these books that, Almost you need to discuss Mm -hmm. to see what you thought, to flesh out what you thought and to, you know, like I've always had this appreciation with it. Yeah. It's funny. I'm pulling the book out right now just to like flip through it. Um. Because I feel like the experience that she created was, it was a dreamlike experience, you know, And, and how do you like that? Right. It's interesting. Like, I wonder how she came up with this. Like, did she say, I want to write about a virus and the effect of that virus on a contained area? And then did she decide that the dreaming is the symptom of this virus? Or was it the other way around? Like, was she kind of interested in dreams like I, I think, I think she did a lot of research on dreams. Yeah. I, did you see the reader's guide at the end of the book? Was that in your version? Because I've got the I've got the ARC here. 
Cause that, or there's like a, a, a conversation, an interview that Karen Russell did with her. And she talked a lot about research that she did into dreaming. Mm. And, um, there's this quote. So that, Oh yeah. You had that quote, I think in your review, in my review, right. Like, That's really interesting. Karen yeah. Russell says, dreams seem to me to be the most honest communication a body can have with itself. Right. And I think that's and so true. And you said yes. I think yeah, yes. You said, um, yes. <laughs> I mean, have you ever like woken up from a dream and you're like, I mean, I have extremely literal dreams. Like uh, my dreams are often like, you know, if I have something due later that day, my dream is about turning that thing in. Like it's super literal. I know exactly what's on my mind. But then there's sometimes when you dream about something and that's like, or somebody and they appear in a surprising way. And you're like, wow, like maybe I hadn't ever explored what I was really thinking about that person. And I think it's true because when you're dreaming, you're kind of totally uncensored and your brain is free to go off in unfettered directions wherever they, wherever it wants. And so I, what I find most frustrating about dreams is just that I can't remember them. And the ones I do remember, I'm always like, wow, that's very interesting. So I loved that quote that Karen Russell said to Karen Thompson Walker and Karen Thompson Walker loved that. She said that was a genius thing to say because she completely agreed. So I think I'm curious to know like sort of how, what sparked the inspiration from this, for this book. Um, You know, in some ways it's similar to her first book, which was um, the age of miracles, which is a book about the earth's rotation slowing down and the impact that it has on everyday life and in particular the life of a, of an adolescent girl in California. And again, like I loved that book because it took this very universal thing, which was the, this, you know, huge environmental shift, but it put it through a very personal lens. And I think that's what she did here, but I'm just, I'm just curious to know kind of the, the chronology of how she developed this storyline. Another interesting thing about her is that she used to be an editor, Simon and Schuster. Mm. And she wrote this book, I think, you know, getting up in the morning before going to work. Wow, good for her. That's impressive. <laughs> yes, Seriously yes, impressive. Is. Like people who write books with having a full-time job, like it's hard. Well, having a full-time job where that is requiring you to constantly either be reading to acquire or reading because you're editing mm-hmm. the amount of reading right. plus working on your own writing. Right. I think that's, and how do you like sort of distance yourself? Like in a lot, it's one thing to just say, I need like quiet physical space to do, but how do you distance your brain intellectually from all the other books that you're working on through whatever you're, you know, if you're editing it or doing whatever, and then get back to like that space of creating your own thing. That just, that must be really hard. Not couple because there is not, which set of characters or which groupings were most intriguing to you? Um, I guess for me, it was the, um, the couple with the baby and then the two girls that live next door. For me, like I just just watching their dynamic with each other, and I think the couple with the baby. I've, I it's been a little while, so I don't remember anyone's name, but that for me is the one that I liked coming back to the most. How about you? Probably the college students, mm-hmm. May and 
Matthew? Mm-hmm. The ones who I go think, to live in the tent? Yes. I feel like they had the most... Well, okay, so there... I think it was Rebecca who fa- who fell asleep and she ended up pregnant. And May and Matthew, I feel like they were sort of the most impactful and gave me, I guess, the most satisfying, like conclusion that I could get from this book I mean I'm not sure what she was trying to say the effect that Rebecca had when she woke up and she had had this profound dream of having a Mm -hmm. son Mm -hmm. and she had just raised him and gone through all of this stuff you know like she had lived a full life yeah that was pretty amazing you must be to wake up and to not have had that relationship and then to have you know, now you're going to be embarking on a relationship with a new child when this other one has been so close to your heart and it was a boy and this one is a girl. Her experience, like, I just felt like really made me think and left a mark on me because, I don't know, on the one hand, how beautiful that she had this relationship with her son because they were really close in the dream and she's lived that, but to have that ripped away from you, you know? Oh yeah. I thought that was so sad. Mourning this death of a person that never actually existed. Right. And then she doesn't know because who's to say that this isn't the dream that she's awakened to. Like, yeah. Okay. So now I've, I've awakened in this facility and you're telling me that my son is not real and I did not have a life. Right. And, that must really just mess with you because how do you ever know what's real if you can have something so vivid like that? Right. Have you ever had any dreams like that, that you woke up? I mean, I've had dreams that have left extreme emotion on me, but I didn't remember them in the detail that I would have said, you know, like it seems like she questioned her surroundings and why wouldn't you? Yeah. And you think about it, she was asleep for so long. I mean, our dreams are all really short, but this she was asleep for like a year, right? I mean, I think, didn't she give birth while she was still dreaming? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have had dreams where I wake up and then when it's, I realize it wasn't true. Oh, my God, I had an Obama dream the other day. Oh, you did? I have a, I have them regularly. I had one <laughs> and it was not inappropriate. Um, I forgot he was, I was somewhere and he was there and he's always this, like, as we've discussed this calming presence, like when I'm around him, it's always like, okay, things are going to be okay now. Obama is here. So then I wake up from those. And of course I have not actually been around president Obama and things are still the same. It's always very disappointing, but yeah, no, I know that feeling of like waking up and kind of mourning, mourning the consciousness. Cause you've been in this reverie of something. I mean, and then there's also times when I wake up and I'm incredibly relieved because something right, really bad right. had happened or Ooh, I was scary. God that wasn't real. Yeah. Like something scary or I got out of a bad situation. So yeah, I like that she explored that stuff. Now May and Matthew was a surprise to me. I mean, it wasn't a surprise to me. I'm not surprised with what he picked. It was just really interesting. Did I call him Patrick? His name is Matthew, I think. It was surprising because, you know, May ends up, she dies at the end. She dies of smoke inhalation or she dies in the Mm. fire. There's a fire at the end, which I was sort of suspecting that the survivalist father may have set, but maybe he didn't. Um, I wasn't sure what anticipated that fire. Right. But 
Matthew has the chance to save May, who is someone who he has spent all of this time with. And she talks about, she was interesting because she had, it was like, she got to see like people are bonding and reacting in different ways to this virus. And she makes a statement when the pharmaceutical people arrive at the house and they end up staying with them. And it forces Matthew and May to sleep outside in a tent. They, they start becoming intimate and they start doing everything together. So for all intents and purposes, they are a couple And then at the end of the book, when he chooses, she thinks, okay, I'm going to be okay because Matthew is here and he's going to save me. And he saves the baby. Right. I don't know. That was, you know, not that he didn't do the right thing. And of course, that is another topic of discussion. Like, what do you think about what he did? You know, that he was able to do that and what his issues were. Well, did you have... Any he, kind of feelings around that? I mean, he was pretty he was pretty straightforward about who he is, but I feel like we just don't believe people are that cold. Yeah, I mean, he, he was an interesting character from the start, you know, rejecting kind of his rich life and feeling very driven by his own morals and his own values and what he believed to be important. And, I mean, I kind of got the sense from the beginning, you know, that he he was not going to be an emotionally reliable person for her. And he, that obviously was borne out. So I, I'm not, I, I wasn't that, I guess I wasn't that surprised. I wasn't surprised, but I was still hurt for her because of yes, her. For sure. Her expectations and her feelings, you know, I mean, even before then he had pretty abruptly said, look, no, I'm whatever's going on in here. Here. It's not because I love you. Right. And then he had tried to distance himself, you know, like she was always trying to form this bond. And it's just like in this horrific thing that's going on in this town, she has this opportunity and she's not even able to make it in the way that she would like to. Yet she sees people who have met each other like a week ago or or two days ago. And it seems like that they have bonded in such a way that she doesn't seem capable of doing it. And it talks about her relationship with the other women in the dorm. You know, some of it seems to be because she's from, you know, she is, I want to say she's Korean. I don't remember what her ethnicity was, but it seems like she was isolated because she's going to this white school and she's, you know, thinking about whether she should have gone someplace where one of her friends was going and, you know, her relationship with her mother. So she's always had this sense of isolation that she was trying to overcome. Mm-hmm. And, and just to have even that ripped away from her at the end was just sort of. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. All I right, definitely would you recommend. Re- yeah, this I was going to ask you, do you recommend it? Yes. Yeah, me too. I think it's nice to have an idea that, I mean, this is not a book, like if you're looking for concrete answers, because it is very, very good at recreating the human experience of, you know, you're presented with things and we get half information and maybe it was about this and maybe it was about that. I mean, it really reinforces how much sorting we do of, you know, what information is really relevant, thinking some things are really important and they turn out to not be important at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I, the more I talk about stuff like that, the the greater appreciation I get for this book. But I think to temper it 
with you know there are no there are no answers and it is just sort of sticking things up how do different people re- react to disastrous situation you know like what what information is actually true how things spread because we don't have the right information right like she's very good at tapping into like the hysteria and paranoia and kind of impulses that people go through when they get into this type of situation whether or not it's founded in any kind of reality it's good discussion book but i was still vaguely unsatisfied by it mm-hmm. yeah I was age of miracles more concrete i feel like i, I think so writing, though. yeah i think if you liked this i would really highly recommend age of miracles because it is more concrete because you've got a very specific thing. The earth is, sh- the earth is slowing down. And I love how she explores all the ramifications of that. Not only just on like vegetation and food, but on human behavior and, and cycles of the earth. It just, it was, I, I love the age of miracles and I liked it better than this one. So I, I, if you like this one, then I think you'll really like that. one. Oh, you did like it better than this one. Okay. Yeah, I did for sure. But, um, I liked them both. I love her writing, but I would highly recommend right, yeah. pick up The Age of Miracles. I thought I was really going to love it when it was more specific, which was in the beginning. You know, like when they start off in that dorm room with May reacting to her roommate falling asleep and, you know, like the girls reacting. And she has this really interesting moment where people are getting more real as this is happening. And then she says something like, the boys realize that the girls wore glasses or whatever because no one's putting yes. in contacts or whatever and everyone's being more of them true selves. Yes. And it was just so like... <laughs> yes. She's got such a good eye for that stuff. I completely agree. And then it just got a little bit too big. There were a lot of characters and it got a little bit too abstract for me. Mm-hmm. But those opening scenes, like I really loved it, loved her writing and just loved her little very astute observations on culture and and relationships. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. So folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for leaving us your comments and your reviews on I always get a kick out of reading those. So thanks. Thanks for sharing what you think of the show. Do you want to mention our um, next book club book? So our next book club book is going to be A Woman is No Man, right? Yep. All right. Well, um, thank you, as always, for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. And we look forward to catching up next week. Say happy reading. Happy reading. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Readerly Podcast. You can find issues of Readerly at readerlymag.com. And you can find me, Gail, blogging at Every Day I Write the Book, which is at everydayiwritethebookblog.com. And Nicole at Linus's Blanket, which is linusesblanket.com. Please subscribe to the Readerly Podcast at iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Until next time.